Thank you, Jake, for that, that reading. It's sober stuff, sobering stuff. Today we are starting a new series on the cross of Jesus. The cross is, of course, the very heart of Christianity. Uh, John Stott, for example, calls the cross of Christ the greatest and most glorious of all subjects and says there is no Christianity without the cross. J.I. Packer says the cross takes us to the very heart of the Christian gospel. P.T. Forsyth claimed, you do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. And finally, G. Campbell Morgan said that every living experience of Christianity begins at the cross. The cross is a big deal for us. It is the big deal for the entire Christian faith. Without the cross, there is no Christianity whatsoever. And so, this Easter, for, the, uh, for this week, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and then the two weeks following, we're going to spend five messages considering the cross from a whole bunch of different biblical angles, the, the, the different ways the Bible kind of explains the cross. There's these five different kind of word pictures that the Bible uses to explain what is happening when Jesus is dying for us. What does it mean that Jesus died for us? Well, the Bible has plenty of things for us to say. Um, and I will reference at this point um, Tim Keller, who helped kind of like unpack these different five things. Uh, he just points in that in passing, but um, we're going to spend some time thinking about them in depth. Firstly, you've got the language of exile. The language of exile. Christ was exiled. He was cast out of relationship with the Father so that we who deserve to be banished could be brought into the family. We are, we are brought home because Christ is cast out. That will be what we're looking at today. You've got the language that comes from temple, sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice that purifies us, makes us acceptable, makes us able to draw near to the holy God. The sacrifice imagery, Matt will be doing that on Good Friday next week. You've got the language of the battlefield. On the cross, Jesus is defeating our enemies. He's winning a victory for us over Satan, sin, and death. He is defeating the powers of evil. That'll be Easter Sunday. You've got the language of, of ransom, the marketplace. There is this, um, you know, Christ paid the ransom price for our sin. He, he, he bought us out of our slavery to sin. He frees us from enslavement. And then finally, the language of the law courts, right? Christ stands before the judge. He takes on our penalty so that we might be made righteous. We, he removes our guilt. He makes us righteous. He takes the penalty in our place. And so these are the five, five things we're going to be looking at, five kind of biblical word pictures that we find in the Bible that's going to help us hopefully get a fuller picture of what we mean when we say Christ died for us. Um, see if you can remember back, remember, back, remember back to me, with me, to when you were a teenager. For some of you, it'll be harder than others to remember back that far. But do you remember being a teenager? Maybe this is more of my generation thing. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, do you remember being a teenager and having a favorite song? And just thinking it was like, you could just listen to the song forever and ever and ever and never get tired of it. And then, of course, one day you do. And it's ruined forever. Um, but until that point, right? And, and do you remember having this favorite song and like, being really excited to show your best friend. And so you put the song on. You're like, this is the best song of all time. You're gonna, this is going to blow your mind. And then, like, look, no matter what their reaction is, it's going to be insufficient, correct? 
Like you're like you're nervously watching them. Are they enjoying it? Do they appreciate it as much as I do? And the whole time you're just like, oh man, they're just not enjoying it hard enough. They're, 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 they're just not enjoying it hard enough. They're, they haven't got there yet, right? This is the greatest song of all time, after all. And they just they just they're not they're not all in like I'm all in. Well, then you have to go back to the start of the song, play it again to give them another chance. See if you enjoy it harder this time. I can see that you're not enjoying it hard enough. Well. Friends, The Cross of Christ is better than the better, best song ever written, and I am more excited for you and more jealous for you to enjoy it harder, to embrace it deeper, to spend more time reflecting on its beauty. And so we're going to spend five times just remembering that Jesus died. Sometimes, without thinking, as Christians, we oversimplify the cross. We kind of water, water it down a little bit. We flatten it. So the beauty of it has kind of like disappeared. We, we, we turn the multifaceted diamond with all the, you know, the thing that we can turn over in our hands and see all the beauty of. We kind of just flatten it down to like a single, single pixel image, which isn't wrong. It's just not complete. And so we're going to spend some time understanding, meditating on the beauty of the cross and see how these five things don't compete with each other, but complement each other and build something wonderful. Um, there is a single thread that runs through all these things, which I'm just going to point out before we jump into the text today. Um, there is a single thread that runs through, and that is, in each of these different images, the irreducible theme is that in all these things, Christ is our substitute. Let me read this from Tim Keller, who points this out when he, when he talks about this. He says, the essence of the atonement is always Jesus acting as our substitute. He fights the powers. He pays the price. He bears the exile. He makes the sacrifice. He bears the punishment for us in our place and on our behalf. In every picture, in every grammar, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He accomplishes salvation. We do nothing at all. And therefore, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus is at the heart of everything. This is why we call the series In Our Place, because this is what we want you to hear for the next five weeks running. In Our Place. Jesus died in our place for our sin, and he conquers, he, he, he bears our exile, he's our sacrifice, he conquers our enemies, he brings us out of slavery, he delivers us from guilt. He died in our place and for our sin. And so today we're going to look at this first one, this idea of exile. And so our passage today, we heard the long version from Jake, which is wonderful. Um, I'm going to zero in here on just really, the, the passage is really just the one verse, verse 46 of chapter 27 of Matthew. Let me just repeat it again. I'll go from verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, it's midday, middle of the day, sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray one more time. Lord, today as we meditate on these words, I pray you would give us understanding, Lord. Help us understand the great mystery 
of these words? Lord, would we feel the emotion in these words in your voice? Would we not dishonor you by watering them down to mean something else, Lord? But would we sit with the the real kind of distressing reality of what it is you're saying here? So give us understanding. Open up our eyes to see what happened on that day. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, our first biblical theme, as I said, is the theme of exile. That Jesus was cast out so we might be brought in. Um, we've gone with the, if you bring up those graphics again, you can see the um, different images we've got for the different things. The first one we've gone with is like a no entry symbol. Jesus, he's not allowed in because he's been cast out, right? So that's the exile symbol. You've got the lamb for sacrifice, the swords for the battlefield, money for ransom, and then like the justice scales for that last one, justice. Um, but look, when we talk about exile today, to talk about exile, you have to talk about what it means to be, what it means to be home. You can't be exiled from somewhere if you don't have a home, right? That's what exile is. You're, you're sent out from your home. So the first question we've got to ask is, what is our home? Where is our home? What does it mean to, to have a home? What does it mean to have a home? Well, the story of the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2, and it tells us our origins, where we come from, what, how it is we found ourselves to be here as a race of humanity. We are here because God created us to be with him. He made us to walk with him, to know him, to live with him. And today, I hope you know that that's why you're here. I hope that you know that that is why you exist. You are here to know your God, it's your purpose. That's why you woke up this morning. That's why God put you here. The story continues, though. Adam and Eve, our our first parents, they rebel against the God of heaven. And they are. They are, they um they seek to be God themselves. They usurp his authority. They effectively believe the lie of the snake, Satan that they could be a better God, and they claim his authority for themselves. In so doing, they fracture relationship with him. They fracture that good relationship that they got to enjoy with him, and they are then separated from him. They are cast out of the garden. They are exiled from their home of life with God. This, This sin that they committed fractures relationship and means that God and them can no longer live together, fractures the whole created order, and God has them removed from his presence lest they die, as they have become sinful. I think you could summarize the rest of human history from that point as endless restlessness, um, homesickness for our true home with, with the Lord. Everything in our life is somehow has this kind of like restlessness attached to it because we're not, like on an existential level, we're not home. We, we don't belong here. This isn't how it's supposed to be. We live in this world today in the shadow of humanity's exile from presence of God. We live in the shadow of humanity's exile from the presence of God. And I think there is something deep in us all, deep in the human soul, that knows 
that we're not home here. Something in us deep that knows that this isn't how it's supposed to be. We have this restless itch inside of us. I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it like crazy. This restless itch inside of me that says, this isn't it. I'm not home yet. Do you feel that? It's like a low-grade fever in the back of of our minds that we just can't scratch, just won't go away, that says, this isn't my home yet. Me and Larissa got the privilege of getting to build our home out at Warner. We love our little house. It's not our forever home. It really isn't. When we were building it, we knew it wasn't our forever home. The Lord has a, a better forever home for us. The Bible says that God himself has put eternity into the hearts of men. There is something in us which knows that our life is bigger than what we can see. That our life is bigger than however many years we have to live here. We know that death isn't, shouldn't be the end. It isn't the end. There's something in us that craves meaning beyond this world, beauty beyond this world, purpose beyond this world, love that doesn't end with a death or a betrayal, and, 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 and never-ending love. I think deep down every human knows that we're not just hunks of highly evolved meat made from space debris that just happen to care about the difference between good and evil. I think every person knows that. Even the atheist, I think, would, would know that that just a, doesn't make sense of who we are as people. A church father, Augustine, he said, he said it well. He said this. He said this in a prayer to the Lord. He said, because you have made us for yourself, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because we're made for God, he says, our hearts are restless until we can find rest with God. There is this pull inside us all towards the eternal, towards something that matters. We want to live a life worth living. We want to live a life that we think matters. And tell you what, that pull towards the eternal I don't know about you, but it keeps us. It keeps us from actually in being fulfilled by the things of this world. If you're here and you're sick of living the kind of life that is just about chasing what's in front of you, more dollars, more whatever it is, more experiences, can I say, like, it's not gonna, it's never gonna be enough. There is something more. You can have it. You really can. If you're sick of living that kind of life that just doesn't go anywhere right now, you can, you can respond to the Lord in prayer. You can ask him for this kind of rest that Augustine's speaking about, that rest of the soul. John Bloom, he, he said this about this whole, this whole feeling of being out of place. He says, no matter where we, go, where we are, No matter what we do, we're always foreigners. We feel somewhat out of place. Until we really come to grips with this reality, we will repeatedly feel disorientated and disappointed. The reason home always always eludes you now is that you are made for another world. 
No worldly experience can satisfy your inconsolable longing. No relationship, no successful achievement, no possession, no amount of public approval will ever satisfy you here. The best these things can do is give you a brief copy and shadowy glimpse of your true homeland. The best they can do is make you homesick for the better country where you belong, yet have never seen. So, friends, this world is not your home. That's actually good news. It means that that itch inside you is real, and it's a good thing. You will never be truly content here, and if you are today, you won't be forever, just so you know. We live in this world in the shadow of humanity's exile from God's presence. Here's the good news of Easter. God sent Jesus to come get us, to bring us home. That's the good news of Easter. God sent Jesus to come and get us. Let's go back to Matthew. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit more again, just to remind us what we've seen. This is the, the account of the death of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. I go from verse 32 here. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. So they didn't ask him nicely. They, they compelled him with spears. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. They meant that ironically, by the way. He's been crucified King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Seems like pretty easy maths for them. If you're a miracle worker, now seems like a good time for a miracle. Jesus, save yourself. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, all the religious elite, mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, again, king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe him. He trusts God. Let him deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, verse 50 now, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. After three hours of suffering and dying on the cross, something apocalyptic happens. Darkness. Mid, it's midday. Between midday and three o'clock, darkness covers the whole region. 
in the Old Testament, darkness is a symbol of divine judgment. Just as we today might wear black at a funeral, so all of creation dressed in the darkness of mourning as the Son of God hung dying for the sin of the world. And into that darkness, into that darkest day the world has ever seen, Jesus, the light of the world, spoke. There's seven things he says on the cross. We're just focusing on one today. And Jesus says, into that darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't blissfully ease into death's embrace. I don't know if he caught it, but this word, he screamed with a loud cry. He wasn't at peace saying this. This is not a peaceful whisper. The Greek word here is loud cry or scream. I'm not sure I can think of anything more distressing than imagining Jesus crying out loudly these words. Distressing, honestly. Up until this moment in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other one, in the other ones as well, really the focus has been entirely on firstly the injustice of what's happening, these sham trials that are, that are going on, these three or four trials that are all shams, but as well just the physical suffering of Jesus. The focus has is been on what is happening to him physically. He's blindfolded by the guards and beaten being taunted, hey, which one of us, you know, you're you're a prophet, prophesy which one of us hit you. He is then flogged, has his back torn up so that his flesh is beaten to a pulp. He has a jagged crown of thorns jammed on his head. He is forced up a hill underneath the weight of a heavy cross. Eventually, he just can't do it, right? And they get someone else to help him carry the cross because he physically can't get it up the hill anymore. And then nails are driven through his hands and his feet, through the nerve clusters in his hands and his feet, and the trauma of his body as the thing is lifted and dropped into a hole while his body is weighing down on his nails. This is what has been the focus. But in these words, we see that that is just beginning to scratch the surface of what is happening this day. Jesus does not complain about the physical torment. In these words, we see the true weight of what is bearing down on Jesus' soul, which is more than just the muscle and bone on the nails. What is weighing on his soul is his forsakenness. Is his forsakenness. This is the first time in Matthew Jesus addresses God without calling him Father. Do you feel the weight of that? The Son of God cannot call him Father in this moment. He is sitting underneath the justice juice, the sin of the whole world. These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They come from Psalm 22. So this isn't, Jesus didn't make up these words. He is reaching back a thousand years to the Psalm of David, uh, Psalm 22 written by King David. And this Psalm is actually filled with incredibly accurate prophecy about the crucifixion day. So again, written a thousand years ahead of time. Let me show you one or two things that this psalm says about the crucifixion. This is David speaking, again, a thousand years earlier. He says this, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. 
Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do, do you remember the religious people saying that to Jesus? Hey, you, you, you trust in God. Why, why isn't he saving you now? Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I'm like that's, that's about as clear as you can get in terms of prophecy. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, a thousand years prior. This psalm, if you go read it, it could well be written about Jesus. It's written by David about his own, what was going on in his world. Jesus reaches back and he grabs the first line of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the question needs to be asked, why these words? Why not the end of this psalm, which is wonderful and very, like it's, it's triumphant and victorious. God has come through for him. Why not the next psalm? Psalm 23. It's a beautiful psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Why isn't Jesus quoting that one? It's right there. It's the next one, Jesus. Why isn't he praying something like, God loves you all? Why isn't he praying, peace on earth to all men? Why isn't he saying something like, hey guys, I'll be back in three days. It's okay, you don't have to worry about this. This isn't a big deal. Jesus isn't saying anything like that on the cross. In this moment, Jesus, in the agony and distress unmatched by any soul through all of history, he cries out these horrific words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words, one scholar says, they're like fingernails on a chalkboard, and I think that describes it well. Fingernails on the chalkboard. I'm imagining Jesus screaming his forsakenness as he dies. I just. It's not just a moving moment, it's actually distressing. We mustn't tone it down. We mustn't pretend like it was anything less than absolute horror. I think we're meant to feel the weight of this today as we come into Easter week. Reflect upon the agony of Jesus in this darkest hour. In some mystery that we're never going to be able to understand, the Father, this, this eternal relationship that has existed between the Father and the Son, perfect relationship, the Father turns his face away. The relationship is torn. Again, I don't know exactly how to put that into words without creating heresy, and neither has anyone else through history. Trinity wasn't broken clearly, and yet there is a very real turning away, a very real forsakenness. He was utterly cut off and abandoned, and his soul was being crushed underneath the weight of the sin of the entire world. Can't fathom what that means. When we turn to the letters of Paul, we see some help in understanding what this is saying, what this, what this means for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
we might become the righteousness of God. In this moment, this verse is saying that Jesus, in some way that we'll never understand, he becomes sin. Do you see that? He made him to be sin. The innocent Jesus became sin. And so God has to reject Jesus. He has to reject him because he must reject evil. Jesus became sin. His soul bore every despicable act through history, every act of violence, every act of cruelty, every act of pride, blasphemy, sexual perversion. It's all placed on the back of Jesus. Donald McLeod says this, he, he says this, he stands where none had stood, before or since, enduring at one tiny point in space and time all that sin deserved. Friends, on the cross, God turns his back on the sun in judgment so that he could extend us the right hand of fellowship, welcome, welcome us into his family. Don't miss the first words of this verse in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake. This is why this is happening. It's for our sake. This isn't an accident. Jesus is sacrificing his life for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just update that word as well. For your sake. For your sake. What is happening on the cross of Christ is for your sake. You and I, we belong there. We belong underneath the judgment of God for our sin. We have no way out. We cannot earn our way into his good graces. It is only through the open hands of faith where we lay down our trying and lay down our sin and just be honest with the Lord and say, we need you. We need you. Friends, Jesus, Jesus bore that sin so that you would never have to. It was for your sake. Jesus' forsakenness means your adoption. It was for your sake. Jesus takes your place on that cross so that you could take his place at the dinner table of the king. It was for your sake. Do you see what I'm saying? On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can cry out, my God, my God, why have you accepted me? And we know the answer. It's because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. You can never earn your way into God's good graces. The cross is enough. It is sufficient. It is more than enough. How could it not be enough? It is enough for us all. I discovered an old English poem um, by Elizabeth Browning, and I just want to show you a little bit because it was just beautiful. Just a few words. Elizabeth Browning, 200 years ago, she says, there's once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe had shaken. It went up single, single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation. That of the lost, no son should use those words of desolation. Do you see what she's saying? Jesus said it so you never have to. You, you never have to say those words. If you receive by grace the gift of life. No one within my hearing, within the hearing of my voice right now, need ever say these words. 
Jesus has faced it on our behalf. He has been forsaken for us. God has made a way. God has made a way to bring us back home, to undo the exile, make a place at the table of God for us. So, I might get um, Jesse and, and Phil to come up as we just close. Today, if you're here, and you probably wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and you're not really sure what that even means, or where you stand with the Lord, no matter where you are in your journey, and we're all on a big spectrum of relationship with God, I just want you to know this, right? The cross of Jesus extends to you forgiveness of sin. Complete, entire forgiveness of sin. The cross of Jesus is proving once and for all that he loves you and that he wants you to be his. And today you can respond to that relationship, initiation of relationship with him. Let me tell you how to do that first. First you need to admit your sin to him. Get it all out in the open. Admit your need for him. Admit that your sin has alienated him, you from him, that you need his grace, that you, there is sin in your life that needs forgiving. That's the first step. We can't go anywhere if, if we're living under the illusion that everything is awesome. Second step is to receive the grace, receive the gift of the cross, receive forgiveness, ask for forgiveness and receive it. Thank him for his death in your place. For the rest of us, those of us that call this church home, if you're visiting from another church, let me ask you, do you feel the weight of Jesus cry today? Do you feel the weight of Jesus cry today? Can you hear it? Does it, does it sound like fingernails on a chalkboard? Pray it does. When you feel God forsaken, you need to remember these words. When you feel God forsaken, you need to remember these words. Because what these words are telling you is that you never, you will never have to face this because Jesus has on your behalf. Do you understand that? You are not forsaken. He has taken your place to bring you home. He really has. And so maybe today, like maybe today, what you need to do is just mourn and weep with our Savior who died for you. Maybe today that's all there is for us to do. It's just to remember what he has done, to praise him, to worship him, to thank him for what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I pray, as we prayed before in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sin, the sin that put you on the cross. Lord, we're all complicit in that in a very real way. And today, we know that we are fully deserving of death, exile, of forsakenness, and we confess our need today for your grace, for your forgiveness, for the gift of new life, 
So, Father, we thank you today for sending your son to come and get us. Jesus, we, we will never know the full weight that those nails held. Lord, we don't even truly know what it means if we're honest with ourselves. We don't truly even know what it means that you were forsaken that day. But your cries are enough to tell us what we know, what we need to know. Jesus, we thank you for your courage, that you did not turn away from what needed to be done to rescue us. Lord, help us this Easter to enter into the story, to enter into your suffering, Lord, and to be transformed by your love, sacrificial love that you've displayed for us on the cross. Lord, and for those of us in this room who need to receive this gift for the very first time, Lord, I pray that you would show them that. You'd speak to them now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. You would, you would nudge them, nudge them again. Lord, give them no rest. Lord, show them your great love and lead them into true repentance, true confession of sin, Lord, and a relationship with you that will last forever and bring them home. We love you, Lord. We want to love you more. We thank you for your cross. And this Easter, we ask that you would help us to see what it means that you died for sinners. To see it in all of its beauty. We pray this, these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.